Friends, good evening. Welcome again to McLean Presbyterian. My name is James. I'm the senior pastor here, and it's a privilege to continue with you this week our series looking at the life of David. So turn with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel, the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 9. If you want to pull out one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find this on page 260. As you turn there, let me request a prayer from you this week. Uh, Our denomination has a college ministry called Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, and they every year have a a summer conference where uh, 1,200 students from about 50 to 60 colleges descend on a beach in Florida and have have a speaker and fun events all week. So I'll be be speaking to them this this coming week, uh, Monday through Friday, a number of different talks. And so just pray for for that time. It's such a profoundly important season. Uh, in the lives of these young adults where their faith has become their, their own and they're starting to um, you know, really lean into what their lives are going to look like and how they're going to follow Christ for themselves for, for the rest of, of their lives. And so we want this to be a, a time that would, God would really use to, to bless them and set them off well onto a life of following Christ. So pray for me this week. I look forward, though, to be back with you again next week. Now, though, we'll start in Second Samuel Chapter 9, verse 1, continuing with our series in the life of David by looking at David and Mephibosheth. And David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then king sent David and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we take a few moments now to reflect on on your word to us, would you come and would you be our teacher. And Lord, would you be in our midst this evening so that you would speak the word that each of us needs to hear, whatever season we're in, Lord. Would we hear from you this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So translation can be challenging. Moving from one language into another language can present all kinds of 
problems. A great example of, of that challenge came this week with French President Emmanuel Macron. Don't know if any of you saw the news story of what happened on his trip to Australia. Here he is in Australia talking about important issues such as defense and climate change with Malcolm Turnbull, the Prime Minister of Australia. And then they hold a, a joint news conference and Emmanuel Macron is thanking uh, them for the hospitality that they've been shown. And he says, I want to thank uh, Prime Minister Turnbull and his delicious wife, right? There was an, a kind of awkward moment in the crowd. This delicious wife, that's very forward, right? You know, is this just, is this just you know, he's French. You know, this is like, you know, French being French, right? Oh, what's going on here? Well, apparently, uh, the French word that Macron had in mind can be translated as delicious, but it can also mean delightful. And that is what Macron had in mind. He meant to thank Turnbull and his delightful wife, but out it came. Translation presents a challenge. Well, in our text this evening, we have a similar, though much less humorous, a challenge posed to us by translation, by moving from one language to another. And I want us to get to it and see its importance by asking three questions of our text. First of all, I want to ask you, what does David do for Mephibosheth? What does David do in this text? Secondly, we want to ask, why does David do it? What motivates him to do what he does? And then thirdly, we'll ask, well, and what difference does that, make, does that make to us? What does David do? Why does he do it? What difference does it make to us? Let's start then by asking, what does David do? And if you look at the chapter heading, pull out your Bible, pull out the pew Bible if you need to uh, follow along with us. As you look at the chapter heading, you get a general answer to that question. David shows kindness to Mephibosheth. Well, who's Mephibosheth? Our passage tells us again and again that there are two things we really need to know about this man. The first thing we need to know that's repeated at the beginning and the end is that Mephibosheth first is crippled. He is, he is lame in both feet. Look at verse 3. That's how he's, how he's introduced to us. Mephibosheth, there, he's the son of, of Jonathan, and, and he's, he's crippled. Then look at verse 13. It's the, the fact that he's crippled is the first thing we're told about him, and it's the last thing we're told about as well. The very last words of the chapter is that Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. Now, the backstory to this comes in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. See, Mephibosheth wasn't always crippled. He wasn't always lame in both his feet. On that sad and dark day when King Saul and Jonathan uh, both lost their lives on Mount Gilboa and the Philistines attacked the Israelites and all of Israel fled from before them, uh, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son, was scooped up by his nursemaid as they all hurried out for, to save their very lives. Well, amidst the drama and amidst the confusion and amidst the tension of this moment, Mephibosheth's nurse, when he was just five years old, drops him. And from that moment on, he becomes crippled in his feet. From that moment on, he's lame in both feet. So he hasn't always lived this way. He started out on that normal trajectory of a, of a wee boy. No doubt he learned to walk and run and climb and explore and get into all kinds of things that his parents didn't want him getting into. But then, at just five years old, this disaster strikes, this terrible accident that leaves him crippled in his feet. Now, today I hope we understand the value 
the dignity and the profound contributions that people with physical challenges can bring. And if you face some of these, then we hope you know that your insight, your perspective, the lens that you now have on certain aspects of life bring a great richness to our church family. We would be much poorer without you. But also understand that that's not the mindset in Mephibosheth day. The fact that he is crippled, the fact that he is lame in both feet, mean that he is seen as having nothing to offer. This is the significance of the fact that he's crippled. He's seen as having nothing to offer. In the culture and in the economy of that day, Mephibosheth has nothing to offer. That's how everyone would have viewed him. But sadly, it's not just how everyone else would have viewed him, it's also how he'd have viewed himself. Literally, Mephibosheth, his name, means he who scatters shame. There's this brokenness now in his story, and he feels like everywhere he goes, he's just scattering that that darkness around, scattering that shame around. We can imagine what a terrible position that is to be in. But that's not actually the worst thing for Mephibosheth in this text. We say, well, that's pretty bad, and it is pretty bad, but that's not the worst thing Mephibosheth has to deal with in this text, because not only is Mephibosheth crippled, but again and again and again, our text points out the fact that he is second, also an enemy of the king. He's crippled, and he's an enemy of the king. How do we know this? Well, look at verse 6. We're told Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul. Now, let's remind ourselves a little bit about why this family tree matters. Uh, King Saul is the evil king. When you hear Saul's name, you boo, right? And he had a son called Jonathan, who was great friends with, with David. But then Jonathan has a son called Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth's granddad is King Saul. What does that mean? It means that he comes from the old regime. He comes from the old line. He isn't in King David's line. Uh, He comes from the former regime, the old dynasty. Now, what does that mean for him under this new king? It means bad things for him. History is full of rulers who have come to power and then quickly, almost immediately, executed anyone who might be a contender to their throne. So we think of Attila the Hun, who had his own brother killed because he saw him as a threat to the throne. We think of Herod the Great, who had his mother-in-law killed, which seems fair enough, right? Um, But then had, had his own wife murdered, had his own wife murdered because he perceived her to be a threat to the throne. Well, understand that the, that way of thinking was alive and well in the Bible too. Alive and well in the Bible too. Let me read you what one commentator says. He says, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, the new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, everybody practiced it. And Mephibosheth knows this. That's why, verse 6, he comes into David's presence with such fear and such trembling. He knows that as a crippled enemy of the king, he has been summoned and fully expects that his fate is now to die. A crippled enemy of the king. But instead of death, what does David do? 
Look at verse 7. Circle it, underline it, highlight it. This is the key verse in the text where we see that David does three things for this crippled enemy. First of all, isn't it beautiful? He sets his love upon him. So star seven starts with David saying, do not fear, which in itself is such a kind way to begin because he knows that Mephibosheth is afraid. And so he's trying to put him at ease. And then he promises, look what he says, I will show you kindness. I will show you kindness. He sets his love upon him. Now, this is where our translation challenge comes up. Because, you know, 99% of the time have absolute confidence in, in your Bibles. Read your Bibles, read them as the word of God. However, from time to time, there's small challenges. And the challenge here is not that the translation of, of kindness is, is in any way wrong. It's not wrong. It's just a little weak. It's a little weak. Why? Because the Hebrew word here is the word hesed, which is the Old Testament word for, for covenant love or for steadfast love. It is the most solid, the most robust, the most full, the most all-encompassing deep way of saying love that can be found in all of the Old Testament. So kindness is just a bit meh, right? A better translation comes from the Jesus Storybook Bible. You read that thing? You need to read that thing. You think it's just for kids? It's not just for kids, right? Um, This book will mess you up. It'll change your life. And Um, here's how they translate it. Are you ready? So much better. They translate this word as the never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love of God. Now that's a translation. Now, okay, ESV, they don't have space to say that, okay? So they went with kindness. But understand that what David is saying here is Mephibosheth. On you, I am choosing to set my love, my covenant love, my steadfast love, my never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever kind of love. That's what I am giving to you. But he's not done yet. Look at the rest of verse seven. Having set his love upon him, look, secondly, he then goes on to to make him rich. Make him rich. See what he says there? I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father. So King Saul, all the land that belonged to him, this is significant wealth, I am now giving it to you. I am now placing it under under your care. And not just that, look at verses 9 and 10. I'm going to charge Ziba and sons with working this land, with um, taking care of of this land. Ziba with his 15 sons and 20 servants, they are going to be the ones who, who work for you so that this land will be productive and that you will always have resources and and, and wealth for you and for your family. He sets his love upon him. He makes him rich. But then thirdly, and most importantly, he makes him part of the family. You see it there? You shall eat at my table always. You shall eat at my table always. Now, friends, um, one of the things we always try and do when we read the Bible is just pay attention to the things that are repeated The things that are repeated are are repeated for a reason. And just note, uh, grab a pen, grab a pencil, and just underline every time you see my table in this text. You see it four times. First, when he says in verse 7, you'll eat at my table. But then this fact that Mephibosheth is to be brought near and to eat at his table is is repeated in verse 10. You see it there. Repeated in verse 11. Repeated again in verse 13. Now, why does this fact appear so often? Because David is saying something really powerful. He's not just saying, hey, come over for dinner. 
in this context, in this day, to be given a seat at the table meant that you were being made part of the family. That's why David says that he'll eat at his table always. It's why David says that he'll be treated as one of his sons. Because David isn't content just to set his love upon him or make him rich kind of over there. David wants to draw him near, wants to make him part of the family. There's a profound difference between being blessed over there and being blessed right here. This reminded me of the story of Albert. Albert wants to be a chef. I know about Albert through our ministries, uh, Romanian Christian Enterprises, an amazing ministry started out of this church about 25 years ago that comes alongside disabled orphans in Romania and seeks to place them with uh, loving adopted families. Well, Albert, uh, he wants to be a chef. And for the first five years of his life, he was literally locked up behind bars in a psychiatric orphanage. Discarded by his parents, he just left there to languish and his body and even his mind deteriorated. But then RCE got a hold of him and placed him with a family. And it's, it's, it's amazing because this boy who didn't talk started to talk. And this wee boy who didn't who didn't walk, started to to walk. And this wee boy, who didn't smile, started to laugh. Because he was given a place, taken away from that orphanage to be placed at the family table. He now has a family, he now has a place, so of course he wants to be a chef. Made part of the family. That's what David's doing for Mephibosheth. He's saying, you're not going to languish over there. You're not going to be allowed to deteriorate. And I'm not just going to love you. I'm not just going to, you know, give you riches. You're going to come. You're going to be with me. We are going to live as family. What does David do? He takes a crippled enemy and he sets his love upon him. He makes him rich. He makes him part of the family. Question two, though, why does David do this? Why does David do all of this, especially since it's so countercultural. We've said the norm, the expectation is when you become king, wipe out everyone who who might challenge your your authority. So why is David not doing that? Why is he not doing that normal political course? Why is he choosing to to treat Mephibosheth in this way? Well, again, let's uh, pay attention to the things that are repeated in the text because our text answers this, this why three times. Verse one, verse three, and verse seven. First verse one, David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Verse three, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Verse seven, most clearly, do not fear for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. You get the idea? David isn't showing Mephibosheth kindness for his own sake. He, he's a crippled enemy. David is showing him kindness for the sake of another, for the sake of Jonathan, his beloved friend. Do you remember the backstory here? So evil King Saul, boo, has a son called Jonathan. David and Jonathan become just best friends. Their souls are knit together. They have this powerful and beautiful relationship. And even while King Saul wants David dead, even while he's actually seeking his head, David and Jonathan bind together in this covenant friendship. 
And Jonathan, who is the rightful heir to the throne, the one who's next in line to become king, recognizes that it's God's will that that David should become the king. And so with incredible humility, he hands over his position and he hands over his power to David. Remember, we studied it several weeks ago. Jonathan takes off his royal robe and he gives it to David, symbolizing the fact that, yeah, I know that I'm in line to be the king, but this position belongs to you. And then he takes his sword and he hands that to David as well, saying, yeah, look, I recognize this belongs to me, but I am handing over my power to you. It's this beautiful um, see, uh, like moment of humility where he is able to decrease because he recognized that God has placed this call upon David's life. Well, a little later on in 1 Samuel, we get to chapter 20. And Jonathan and David are, are talking again. And Jonathan says to him, hey, um, Everything we said before, totally on board with all of that, okay? Not taking any of that back. However, when you become king, when God cuts off all your enemies from before you, don't forget about me and my family. Just because God cuts off your enemies from before you, don't cut off me and my family from your love as well. And David promises that he won't. David promises, he makes a covenant with Jonathan and says, yeah, I I won't forget you. I won't forget you. I won't forget your line. My love will continue. And so what we have here in this text is David seeking to make good on the promise that he'd made to Jonathan. That's why he's seeking a descendant of Saul. That's why he's seeking a descendant of Jonathan, because he has promised to show this never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love to Jonathan's family line. That's the why behind this text. It's not really about Mephibosheth. It's about his covenant with Jonathan. David shows Mephibosheth kindness, not for his own sake, but for the sake of another. And aren't we getting close to understanding point question three, the difference this makes to us, right? Preach this with me. You know where I'm going, okay? What difference does this make to us? Three quick ideas. First, friends, in Mephibosheth's story, we see our story. Now, we've cautioned ourselves throughout this series. Um, be careful when you come to the Bible how you read yourself into the text because the Bible is about Jesus, not about us. Yeah? So when it comes to David and Goliath, right? we're not David. Yeah? Nor are we Goliath. However, if we are to associate ourselves with anyone, we can associate ourselves with a crowd of cowering Israelites who are standing terrified on the sidelines. Yeah? Well, once again, there is someone in this text that we can associate with. Um, And it's not David and his nobility, it's Mephibosheth as a crippled enemy of the king. A crippled enemy of the king. He reveals to us our own condition. He's crippled. He is a broken dude walking around. Aren't we all? Not just is he crippled, though, he... He's an, he's an enemy of the king. I just wonder, friends, uh, have you had that moment of realization that your sin, your brokenness, the things that you've thought and said and done, they're not just sort of make life challenging or, or make life less than optimal. We're not just broken, but we're also therefore sinful and in rebellion against God. Have we wrestled with that fact like Mephibosheth did? Do we, do we come into the presence of God with a sense of trembling because we recognize our own brokenness? 
Have you had that moment where you realized how serious this is? Reminds me of the story of 33-year-old Kent Bradley. He was a doctor with Samaritan's Purse serving in Liberia when the Ebola epidemic broke out. Ebola, remember, is just this terrible disease that begins with a sore throat before moving on to nausea, before moving on to internal and external bleeding, before then causing organ failure. It killed over 70% of those who contracted it in in West Africa. In the best medical conditions, it's still about a 50% death rate. But there in West Africa, it killed over 70% of those who contracted it. Well, once this uh, epidemic hit, um, Bradley sent his, his wife and children back home to the States. Can you imagine just for a second what that must have been like? You know, what, what, what's that goodbye like for husband and for wife, for father and for, for children? What, what was that moment, moment like? Well, he himself stayed to try and combat this disease and you can guess what happened, right? It wasn't long until he started to diagnose in himself symptoms. See, the evil, the disease was no longer just out there. It started to incubate within. And can you imagine the shock of that moment? That moment of, of realization that what that must have been like? Well, to me, that becomes a powerful picture for us as we try and weigh and reckon with our own sin. Have you, have you come to the understanding that the evil isn't just out there, but the evil is also incubating within? That what's wrong with the world isn't just a problem with what's wrong out there or what's wrong with everybody else even in this room, but also with what's wrong in, in our own hearts and souls as well. Friends, I don't know about you. I am showing symptoms of sin that the virus is in me. And I show you symptoms every day. Do you see them in yourself? Do you know that the death rate is worse than 70%? That 100% of sinners outside of Christ will find themselves in hell? Have we weighed the seriousness of our sin. Mephibosheth would call us to do that, to realize that we're crippled enemies of the king. But more. Not only in Mephibosheth do we see ourselves, but also there's hope because in David, we see our God in Christ. In David, we see our God in Christ. How our God deals with crippled enemies of the king. Because he doesn't just march us into his presence and execute us as we might deserve. Instead, what does he do? Everything David did for Mephibosheth. Oh, I got, did so well. got to this point in the sermon without getting it wrong. Everything David did for Mephibosheth and more, right? First of all, is it not true in the gospel that God sets his love upon us? That God sets his love upon us. Romans 5 verse 8. God shows his love. Well, you know, what was that? His never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever kind of love. God shows his love for us in this. In what? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies. While we were still crippled. Christ died, died for us. He loves us in our current state. 
Not only that, but he makes us rich. Romans 5 verse 9. We've now been justified by his blood. How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? The wrath that was due to us has been fulfilled completely by Christ. And in its place, he now lavishes us with grace. Grace enough to save us for eternity, but grace enough for time here as well. The gospel gives us the resources that we need in the presence of Jesus himself to navigate this life and live as he has called us, called us to, to do everything that he designs and wills for us, to live a life of joyful obedience. And lastly, of course, he loved us, he makes us rich, and he makes us family. Romans 5 to 10, we've gone verses 8, 9, 10, verse 10, while we were enemies, We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Reconciled. Isn't that good? God hasn't come and said, okay, your enemies, stay over there. I will love you. And because I'm good, stay over there. I will make you rich. He said, no, I'm going to reconcile you. What does that mean? It means I'm going to bring bring us back together. I'm going to make you again part of the family. To all who receive Christ, he's given the right to become children of God. He is giving us a seat, we could say, at the family table. This is what it means to be saved by his grace, to be loved, to be made rich, to be made part of the family. And listen, friends, the gospel, the death rate is 100%, and the cure of the gospel is 100%. There is nobody that's so sick that this gospel cannot cure them. Why? Because God's love is never stopping, it's never giving up, it's unbreakable, it's always and forever. And so it doesn't matter who you are, and it doesn't matter what you've done. You can be part of his family if in the name of Jesus you come. God shows us kindness, not for our sake, but for the sake of another. God shows us kindness, not for the sake of Jonathan Saul's son. God shows us kindness for the sake of Jesus his own son. So there's a sense in which, friends, we should all want to be chefs. (laughs) Why? Because we're all Alberts. We're all Alberts. Crippled enemies, found far off, brought near by the incredible love of God. Which takes us to the third and last thing just to touch on. In Mephibosheth, we see ourselves. In David, we see our God. And in the rest of Mephibosheth's story, we see what we could be. You know, this isn't the last we hear of, of Mephibosheth. He makes another appearance later on in Second Samuel chapter 19. A dispute breaks out over who Mephibosheth's land really belongs to. Does it really belong to Mephibosheth or does it belong to someone else? And Ziba, who we read about in this text, uh, makes this deceitful claim to, to the land. And what Mephibosheth does is really interesting. He doesn't come in, though he has every right to, and and defend himself in front of King David. Instead, he says this, chapter 19, verse 28, For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. So, verse 30, oh, let him take all the land. And what we see as that story unfolds is that Mephibosheth is not concerned about riches, about possessions, about land. All he's concerned about is a relationship with the king. A relationship with the king. The kindness of David 
never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love, changes Mephibosheth. It changes his priorities. It changes his desires. And the same is true for us when we've been loved by God. Now understand, what I'm trying to get at here is, isn't really at the level of motivation, okay? It's not saying, oh, well, you know, God's done all this stuff for me, so I guess I can at least do some stuff, right, in return. To see how that becomes a kind of form of legalism, where it's like, oh, I'm, I'm doing good things because I sort of feel like I should, right? Th- that's not really what, what, what happens in this story. What it's more like is um, one of the most powerful things that just blew me away when I spent time in Romania with this ministry and in the orphanages was to see how much the love of a family would change a child in ways you wouldn't expect. So, like Albert, children who didn't speak would be placed in a family and would start to speak. Now, they weren't given speech therapy. It wasn't like a, a medical thing. They were just loved by a family and they'd start to open their mouths. Children who didn't walk would start to walk. There, no medical treatment was given. Just in the context of a family, they start to flourish. Children uh, who didn't smile start to laugh. Children who were written off, their intellectual abilities were written off, uh, graduate from high school. Um, being loved, being placed in the context of a family changes things within. Changes us in our, in our very inner beings. It makes things possible that weren't possible before we had that kind of connection, before we had that kind of care. And the gospel does the same thing for us. Walk, talk, so on. The gospel comes and it changes us at our level of of desires, at our level of our lives, so that we start to live differently. Like Mephibosheth started to live a life of loyal sacrifice, a life of joyful obedience, so when we are loved, we start to do the same. We start to live free from the love of money, from the challenges of impurity, from endless worry. We start to be free to live lives of of forgiveness, lives where we're careful how we use our words, lives where we, we grow in Humility. We start to live lives that are free to take godly risks with uh, friends and neighbors who don't know the Lord, with our generous, generosity towards, towards the poor. We start to become the men and the women and the boys and the girls that God has created for us to be because now we're part of his family. Lives of loyal sacrifice, lives of joyful obedience. And I just wonder, friends, is there some sin in your life that you need to put away? Some sin in your life that you need to put away? Is there some freedom in your life that you need to embrace? A freedom in your life that you need to embrace. The gospel says that we've been taken crippled beggars from far off, given lavish riches, but then placed within his love. And this joy, the joy of the Lord, is our strength. The strength to live lives of loyal sacrifice. The strength to live lives of joyful obedience. And friends, we can have that joy. And tonight, we have a reminder of it before us. Oh, Christian, you're not in the orphanage anymore. You literally have a seat at the table. You literally have a seat at the Lord's 
table. That's what this meal is about. This meal is for those who know that they're crippled, uh, who know that they used to be enemies, and yet who know that they've been forgiven full and free, loved, given riches, been brought into the family. If that describes you tonight, then come and take the Lord's Supper, and when you do, taste it and know that these things are true. At the same time, we have to say a hard word, which is, if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, you need to realize that you don't have a seat at the family table. Not because of your unworthiness, but because of your refusal to admit your unworthiness. The people who have a seat at the table, how impressive are they? Well, they're crippled and they're enemies. That's how impressive they are. The only difference is that they know it. Believers come hobbling to this meal looking for more grace. And if you haven't come to that place where you know you need the grace of God, then, then you don't yet have a seat at this table. And, and, and there's something weighty to that. There's, there's something um, heavy to realizing that you're not yet reconciled to God, but you can be. You can be. Tonight, right now, this very moment sitting here, you too can be reconciled. You too can be given a place at his family table if you receive Jesus as your Lord and Christ. If you do, do you know what you'll find? You'll find that when it comes to this meal, French is appropriate because it's not just delightful, it's delicious. We eat and drink to the health of our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Again, the, the weight of your word and for how it addresses the brokenness of our condition, but the overwhelming grace that you've provided to meet us in our desperate condition. And Lord, we, we never want to be a church that shies away from hard truths, hard realities. And so we do want to test ourselves and challenge ourselves. Have we received the love of the king? Are we living like we've received the love of the king? But at the same time, Lord, we, we never want our focus to be upon ourselves. We always want to turn from there to see Christ, whose grace is sufficient for all our sin and for all our failures. For uh, every single one, even the ones committed this day, this weekend, this week, this month, you, Lord, forgive us when we come in Jesus' name. So in Jesus' name we come. Thank you for this delight. Thank you that it's delicious. Amen.